Welcome to Hallowed, Exploring the Lives of the Saints, Episode 24, Terror of Demons. I'm your host, Tom Thorne, and in this podcast, I'll be taking you on a journey through the lives, adventures, trials, and triumphs of the great heroes of the Christian faith. Today, in honor of his feast this week, we're going to talk about one of the greatest saints who's ever lived the husband of Our Lady, and foster father of Our Lord, St. Joseph. St. Joseph is the first biblical saint I've covered in this podcast. I suppose the closest was St. Thecla from episode 2. If you remember back, she was a companion of St. Paul, and her life touched on the events of the New Testaments. But Thecla wasn't mentioned in the Bible. We meet Joseph in the first chapter of the first gospel, right at the very beginning of Matthew. And we meet him in the genealogy of Christ, as a descendant of King David, and as the husband of Mary, the mother of Jesus. I think it's significant that we're introduced to Joseph in this way, through a genealogy, through a family tree. So, let's take a moment to appreciate Joseph's ancestry. Because it is, in turn, the ancestry of Jesus. Like all Jews, Joseph was a descendant of Abraham. Abraham, of course, was the father of Isaac, who was, in turn, the father of Jacob, who was given the title Israel, meaning triumphant with God, after wrestling with an angel. And, as I'm sure you recall from Genesis, It was Jacob, Israel, whose twelve sons became the ancestors of the twelve tribes of Israel. The greatest of these bloodlines was the tribe of Judah, the tribe which would eventually give rise to King David, and through the house of David, to Joseph himself, the husband of Mary, the mother of Jesus. It's at this point that we might be thinking, wait a minute, Joseph is the husband of Mary, but isn't he only the foster father of Jesus? After all, Jesus is the son of God, not the son of Joseph. So why does Matthew go to the trouble of tracing the genealogy of Jesus in so much detail, only to tell us that this is not, in fact, his biological bloodline. To clear up this confusion about Jesus and Joseph and their ancestry, we need to take a closer look at the genealogy itself. In particular, at the fact that four women are mentioned by name among the long litany of men in Joseph's family tree. Taking each in turn, these four women are First, Tamar, a Canaanite widow who poses as a prostitute, seduces her father-in-law, Judah, and becomes pregnant with his child. 
Second, Rahab, an actual Canaanite prostitute, who aids the Jews in their capture of Jericho, and has a child with Salmon, one of the captors of the city. Third, Ruth, the saintly Moabite widow, who endures a life of poverty until she marries her husband's relative, Boaz. And fourth, Bathsheba, probably the most famous of the bunch. The woman King David saw bathing on the roof, leading him to have her husband, the Hittite soldier Uriah, killed in battle, so that he could claim her for himself, thereby conceiving the future King Solomon. So how do these four women help us to understand the ancestry of Joseph, and therefore of Jesus? The German Catholic writer Martin Mosebach explains it very elegantly, so I'm going to read you his words. Quote, The four women have something else in common, that is, aside from being outsiders to the Jewish people. All four were made pregnant by someone other than their husband. Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, was the wife of Uriah, and she stands in the genealogy under this title, not under her own name. This is the most important point. Rahab is a prostitute. Her status is emphasized both in the Old Testament and in St. Paul. By contrast, Tamar and Ruth use schemes and pressure to get older relatives to give them children, entirely legally, for their dead husbands. So if Mary is to be compared to the four women, it is because she, too, did not get her son from her husband. All the offspring of the four women, the illegitimates and those legitimated by the Leverate Law, by the way, that's the Jewish custom, whereby a widow could marry the relative of her husband, all those children became sons of Abraham and members of the house of David. Powerful men stepped into the place of the husbands, and raised up the offspring in their name, the patriarch Judah, the victorious Salomon, the rich Boaz, and finally, King David himself. Someone greater than Joseph, in Joseph's place, begat Mary's son, Jesus. By nature, therefore, Jesus is the son of him who begot him. But according to the Holy Leverate Law, he is the son of Joseph. He is David's son and heir. End quote. The birth of Jesus, in other words, fits into a pattern established in the Old Testament. The sons of unconventional fathers, who were not the legal husbands of their partners. So it makes sense, when seen in this context, that Jesus truly is born of the house of David and the tribe of Judah. Even though he is not the biological son of Joseph, he belongs to Joseph's line by adoption. Add on to this the possibility 
not spelled out in the Bible, but believed by many biblical scholars down the centuries, that Joseph and Mary may have been related, again following the Jewish pattern of marriage within one's tribe. There's a lot more that could be said about Joseph's ancestry. For example, how it foreshadows the birth of the Messiah at Bethlehem. And if you'd like to learn more, I've included links in the show notes to several articles about this subject. For now, it's enough to say that Joseph's ancestry establishes right at the beginning of the very first gospel how the birth of Jesus Christ will fit into the long story of God's chosen people. But if we first learn about Joseph through his ancestry, what do we then learn about Joseph himself? Well, the New Testament doesn't give us too many details of his life. But we do catch glimpses of Joseph's character from the handful of times he's mentioned in the Gospels. First of all, of course, comes the Annunciation. Joseph is betrothed to Mary at the time of the Annunciation, as made explicit in the Gospel of Luke. Yet Mary and Joseph were not quite married in our sense at the time that the angel Gabriel appeared to Our Lady and told her that she would bear a son. That's because, in the Jewish customs of the time, there were actually two stages to marriage. First, a betrothal, in which the couple lived separately while the groom made all preparations. And then, second, the actual marriage itself, when the couple consummated their union and moved in together as husband and wife. It's clear from the Bible that Mary and Joseph were in the first stage, the betrothal, when they learned about the conception of Jesus. This is why it would have been lawful for Joseph to divorce Our Lady, a detail mentioned only by Matthew, who's writing for a Jewish audience. They weren't yet legally married at the time. As you know, when he learns that his betrothed is pregnant, Joseph decides to divorce her quietly. That is, without the public shame of being considered an adulteress. Contrary to what you might think, the Bible doesn't tell us why he decided to divorce her. While many people down the centuries have assumed that Joseph suspected Mary of cheating on him, there's actually nothing in any of the Gospels to indicate this. It's at least as plausible that Joseph took the opposite view, that he sensed that Mary was pregnant by supernatural means and felt unworthy of being her husband. That may sound like a stretch at first, but hear me out. This reading is backed up by the exact language used in Scripture. We are told in this very passage that Joseph is a just man, a phrase used to mean not just a good person, or even a law-abiding person, but more specifically, someone who shows obedience 
and reverence toward the majesty of God. Moreover, when Joseph receives a vision from the angel Gabriel, confirming that Mary has conceived a child by the Holy Spirit, Joseph is greeted with the words, Be not afraid. Again, this is a phrase used over and over in the Old Testaments to emphasize the awe which men feel in the presence of God. Taken together, we can guess that perhaps Joseph was not suspicious of Mary after all, but simply wanted to obey God's will by standing out of her way. That is, until he learned from the angel that he, too, was called to be part of the plan. Following on from the Annunciation is, of course, the story of the Nativity. As we all know, when Mary's pregnancy was nearing its final stages, it was Joseph who had to lead her to his ancestral hometown of Bethlehem, the city of David, to comply with the Roman census. You know the rest of the story, so I won't recount it here. I'll only say that we continue to see, from the very beginning of this story, that Joseph is the protector, the guardian, of his wife and her child. After the birth of our Lord, of course, comes the flight into Egypt, when Joseph is warned by a second dream of the impending danger of King Herod. Learning that King Herod is planning to slaughter all the newborn boys of the land, Joseph leads Mary and the infant Jesus out of Bethlehem and into Egypt, saving the child from the massacre of the innocents under Herod. Shortly thereafter, when old King Herod dies, Joseph is inspired by a third dream to return to the land of his people, and along the way, he is warned by a fourth dream not to go back to Judea, the region around Jerusalem, but instead to head north to the Sea of Galilee, where, of course, he settles in Nazareth. It's there, in Nazareth, that Joseph raises our Lord from infancy, all the way up through his childhood. We are given very few details of the childhood of Jesus. But three events stand out, and Joseph was present at all of them. First, of course, is the circumcision, or presentation, of our Lord. When Joseph, obeying the angel in his dream, confers on the infant Christ the name of Jesus, which means God saves. Second comes the purification of Our Lady. And finally, the discovery of Christ in the temple. When Mary and Joseph are visiting Jerusalem for the Passover, and Christ, at the age of twelve, disappears, only to be found teaching the teachers in the temple. After the discovery in the temple, Joseph disappears from the Gospel narratives. We can surmise that he must have passed away by the time of Christ's earthly ministry as a grown man, as he's not mentioned 
in any of the later stories of Christ's life. That's it. That's virtually everything we learn about St. Joseph in the Gospels. Like I said, we don't get many details. The Gospels, in their laconic style, tell us very little about the childhood of Jesus Christ. And as such, they tell us very little about the fatherhood of St. Joseph. But outside the Gospels themselves, the oral traditions of the Church have passed down more information about the life of St. Joseph, some of which has become official doctrine of the Christian faithful. The most important of these truths about St. Joseph concerns his marriage to Our Lady, Mary the Mother of God. I'm referring, of course, to the fact that their marriage was not a conventional one, in that they abstained throughout their entire married lives from sexual intimacy. In the language of theology, this is the dogma of Mary's perpetual virginity, the belief that Mary and Joseph continued to abstain from normal marital relations, even after the Nativity of Our Lord. While this is not stated explicitly in the Gospels, contrary to what you may have heard, this is not an idea that the Catholic Church made up centuries after the fact. Rather, it's a perennial tradition, attested from the earliest days of Christianity in the written record. It was the view of the Church Fathers, and it can be seen as early as the 2nd century AD in the so-called Gospel of James, an apocryphal work containing stories about Our Lady. While the Gospel of James is not canon, and needs to be taken with a heavy pinch of salts, it does show that Christians already took Mary's perpetual virginity as a given, as early as the second century. The perpetual virginity of Our Lady was officially confirmed as doctrine for the Catholic and Eastern Orthodox churches in the year 553, at the Fifth Ecumenical Council, where Mary was honored by the title Ai Parthenos, the Ever-Virgin. And as such, it remained the universal view of Christians throughout the Middle Ages. Now, the Church does not claim to know exactly why Mary had to remain a virgin for life. That part is open to speculation. But the general view today, informed by St. John Paul II's Theology of the Human Body, is that because Our Lady was chosen above all women to be the Bride of the Holy Spirit, it would have been a step backward in her spiritual journey to be sexually intimate with a man. The physical union of husband and wife is a sacramental sign of God's love. A foretaste, if you will, of the love which we can hope to experience in heaven. And since Mary already experienced that love directly by virtue of her special relationship with God, she didn't need a sign or a foretaste 
it would have been a step backward. Whatever you think of that answer, there is one explanation of Mary's perpetual virginity, which we can firmly rule out. The idea that she, being sinless, which of course she was, couldn't have sexual relations with a man because sex is bad. To claim that would be heresy, plain and simple. If Mary and Joseph had been an ordinary married couple, it would have been perfectly good for them to be intimate in that way. But of course, they weren't an ordinary married couple. They were the mother and foster father of God himself made flesh. So, if it was always believed in the early church that Mary remained a virgin for life, then how did it ever come into doubt? Believe it or not, the perpetual virginity of Mary remained the mainstream view, even among early Protestants, for several centuries after the Reformation. No less than Martin Luther himself, along with Huldrych Zwingli, Thomas Cranmer, John Wesley, and a whole host of other major Protestant leaders, all upheld this ancient Catholic doctrine, that Mary was ever virgin. It was only a minority of Protestants, following John Calvin, who began to doubt this view, citing references to Christ having brothers in the New Testament. Some Protestants took this to mean that Mary and Joseph must have had children together after the birth of Christ. But upon closer inspection, this turns out to be a non-starter. In the New Testaments, the Greek word for brothers is adelphoi. Adelphoi does not have to mean full biological brothers. It's a term for close male relatives, and it can also mean half-brothers or cousins. So, while the Bible doesn't spell out how Christ was related to his adelphoi, his so-called brothers, we can fairly guess that they were either cousins or half-brothers, if we allow that Joseph might have been the widower of another wife before Mary. Personally, I go with cousins, but it is possible that Joseph had been previously married. Either way, Mary's perpetual virginity is left as it should be, as a perennial doctrine of the faith, handed down to us from the earliest days of Christianity, and believed by the great majority of Christians down the centuries. One unfortunate side effect of that text I mentioned earlier, the apocryphal Gospel of James from the 2nd century, which was the first known document to mention Our Lady's perpetual virginity. Well, one unfortunate side effect of that text is that for many centuries, Christians imagined Joseph as a frail old man. This is because the Gospel of James portrays Joseph that way, to suggest that he was too old to have any sexual desire for his wife. That way, 
the reader could have no doubts of Our Lady's perpetual virginity. It's largely due to the influence of this Gospel of James, which casts Joseph in a less-than-inspirational light, that there was little popular devotion to the foster father of our Lord in the ancient and medieval church. But this does a real disservice to St. Joseph. Obviously, there's no virtue in being chaste simply because you're old. Surely, as a great saint, Joseph saw and loved the unspeakable feminine beauty of his wife. But he also loved her divine calling even more. Surely, he respected her special relationship with God, not out of the lethargy of old age, but out of a heroic love for both Our Lady and Our Lord, and a burning desire to do whatever was best for them. We have no way of knowing Joseph's age for certain. But the only source suggesting that he was old is that same apocryphal Gospel of James, which, as I warned earlier, we need to take with a heavy pinch of salt. If we set aside the Gospel of James, then we're free to imagine St. Joseph as he's usually depicted by modern Catholic artists, as a vigorous and healthy young man, strong in body and soul, a picture that fits far more naturally with his portrayal in the Gospels, where he's always shown as the brave guardian of his family. It goes without saying that there are many lessons we can learn from the life of St. Joseph. He was, above all, a devoted husband, father, and protector of those he loved. But we can also learn a great deal from his humility and obedience to God, always listening to God's will and following it wherever it should lead, no matter how surprising. Finally, in the words of St. John Paul II, Joseph teaches us about the sanctification of daily life through his example of work as an expression of love. It's this final point, the holiness of his everyday labor as a carpenter, as a father, and as a husband, which led the blessed Pope Pius IX to name Joseph the patron of the entire Catholic Church in 1870, and which led the venerable Pope Pius XII to institute the feast of St. Joseph the Worker on May Day in 1955. I'd like to finish today's episode with my personal favorite prayer to this great saint the Litany of St. Joseph. If you'd like to join me, you can find a link to the Litany in the show notes. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, have mercy on us. Lord, have mercy on us. Christ, have mercy on us. Christ, have mercy on us. 
Lord, have mercy on us. Lord, have mercy on us. Christ, hear us. Christ, graciously hear us. God, the Father of heaven, have mercy on us. God, the Son, Redeemer of the world, have mercy on us. God, the Holy Spirit, have mercy on us. Holy Trinity, one God, have mercy on us. Holy Mary, pray for us. Saint Joseph, pray for us. Renowned offspring of David, pray for us. Lights of patriarchs, pray for us. Spouse of the Mother of God, pray for us. Guardian of the Redeemer, pray for us. Chaste Guardian of the Virgin, pray for us. Foster Father of the Son of God, pray for us. Diligent Protector of Christ, pray for us. Servants of Christ, pray for us. Minister of Salvation, pray for us. Head of the Holy Family, pray for us. Joseph Most Just, pray for us. Joseph Most Chaste, pray for us. Joseph Most Prudent, pray for us. Joseph Most Strong, pray for us. Joseph Most Obedient, pray for us. Joseph Most Faithful, pray for us. Mirror of Patience, pray for us. Lover of Poverty, pray for us. Model of Workers, pray for us. Glory of Family Life, pray for us. Guardian of Virgins, pray for us. Pillar of Families, pray for us. Support in Difficulties, pray for us. Solace of the Wretched, pray for us. Hope of the Sick, pray for us. Patron of Exiles, pray for us. Patron of the Afflicted, pray for us. Patron of the Poor, pray for us. Patron of the Dying, pray for us. Terror of Demons, pray for us. Protector of Holy Church, pray for us. Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, spare us, O Jesus. Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, graciously hear us, O Jesus. Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, have mercy on us, O Jesus. He made him the Lord of his household and prince over all his possessions. Let us pray. O God, in your ineffable providence, you were pleased to choose blessed Joseph to be the spouse of your most holy mother. Grant, we beg you, that we may be worthy to have him for our intercessor in heaven, whom on earth we venerate as our protector. You who live and reign forever and ever, Saint Joseph, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Saint Joseph is commemorated on the 19th of March in the Catholic Church, and on the Sunday after Christmas, 
or the Feast of the Holy Family, in Eastern Orthodoxy. He also has a special feast of St. Joseph the Worker on May Day, as I mentioned earlier. There are many customs associated with the Feast of St. Joseph on the 19th of March, and I think it's fair to say that of all the countries in Europe, and perhaps in the world, St. Joseph's Day is biggest in Italy. In Italy, there are certain foods associated with St. Joseph's Day, most famously the fava bean soup, known as maku, served with breadcrumbs representing the carpenter's sawdust. Maku is said to originate from a medieval famine in Sicily, when the peasants prayed to St. Joseph for rain and were rewarded with a rich harvest of fava beans. For dessert, there's the sweet zepola pastry, and it's customary to wear red clothes on St. Joseph's Day. In many countries, including Italy and Spain, the 19th of March is also Father's Day. Fittingly, of course, St. Joseph is the patron of fathers, workers, exiles, the poor, married people, the dying, and the entire Catholic Church. May St. Joseph, spouse of Our Lady, guardian of the Redeemer, terror of demons, and patron of the Church, come to our aid now and always for the greater glory of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening, and God bless.